Welcome to Prescription for Jessus. My name is Martin Donahue. You may notice that I'm wearing the exact same outfit as is my guest from our last episode. Hyung Nam, with whom I've been speaking about teaching social justice, has been such a fascinating guest that we decided that we would turn this into a two-part episode. I encourage all our viewers to go to our YouTube channel and listen to the introduction to the last program, where I basically laid out the importance of education to a functioning democracy, a little bit about the history of education and disparities, talked a little bit about the level of ignorance among individuals in the United States, and also encourage you to watch episode one to hear Hyung's insights. Where we left off last time, we were talking about textbooks, teachers teaching to the textbook, to the test. We're going to continue that discussion. Hyung, welcome, and I'll give a little bit of your background first. Hyung um, is a South Korean immigrant and community activist. He studied political philosophy, worked with at-risk youth in both residential and school settings, and then became a social studies teacher. He's been teaching for Portland Public Schools since 2000, participated in social justice teacher groups, and served on the editorial board of Rethinking Schools and the steering committee for Northwest Teaching for Social Justice Conference. I'd hate to say welcome back because I'd be lying since you haven't left, <laughs> but let's continue, Hyung. Back to the textbook issue. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I think that what ends up happening is that textbooks get sanitized of anything that's interesting. I, I, it's, I should just mostly speak about social studies textbooks mm. since that's my field. But anyway, so they will you know, not only the kind of censorship from the special interest groups that don't want certain things taught or the way that they want things taught, but then there's a, a, some degree of self-censorship that happens as well, just thinking that, well, if they, the authors write something one way, it, it could be seen as controversial, so they better mm. make it really bland, um, really boring for students, mm. disengaging for students. So they really become kind of um, unuseful, I think. Um, mm. And um, you know, my experience as a student as well in high school was you know, we raced through the textbook, I memorized all this information, and it really, you know, by the end of the unit, I would get an A on the test, and then a couple units afterwards, I'd forget what I've learned. And mm. by the end of the year, I walk away with no kind of lasting um, learning or Real, and I think the most important part of learning is not just learning, you know, discrete ideas or facts, but becoming engaged and actually developing even more questions and more curiosity. And inspired, absolutely. Exactly. And I remember the the first page, I believe, of Zinn's People's History of the U.S. talks about Columbus's log entry when he met the Arawaks and he landed in the Bahamas, talking about what a peaceful people they were and how they didn't recognize weapons, they cut themselves on the swords, and it ends with him writing, uh, with 50 people we could subjugate them all and make them do our will. And of course that led to their enslavement, uh, to mine for gold, to be sent back to the Spanish king and queen. Uh, people's hands were chopped off and they were put to death if they didn't meet their quotas. Mm -hmm. And you can understand the anger among Native Americans at the fact that there's a holiday called Columbus Day, which fortunately today is only celebrated in, uh, I think it's now uh, 22 states. Uh, it's not celebrated in 28 and in the District of Columbia. 
Uh, there are a lot of other famous Italians <laughs> whom we could honor with a special day. Uh, I don't think it needs to be Columbus, just like I don't think we need to be having uh, in, uh, in uh, Central America uh, Montezuma Day or <laughs> in Peru uh, Cortez Day. <laughs> so tell me, um, what are some of the ways that teachers can incorporate social justice concepts into their curricula? Oh yeah, so um, the what we were speaking about last time was, you know, I think there, well, many, there are other components as well, but two main components I think of is the, the curriculum and then the pedagogy, right? So mm -hmm. not only what we teach, but how we teach it. And I think part of the um, importance of social just, justice teaching is the pedagogy, which means that rather than having students be passive receivers of knowledge, that they are, um, makers of knowledge, um, then they are not only makers of knowledge, rather than working individually and especially competitively against other students to you know, get a better score on the test or whatever, that they become um, problem solvers together. Right? Um, this is what, what we need in democratic society. We need students to develop civic skills um, how to, to communicate with one another, but more importantly, rather than just relying on you know, the experts or authority figures to solve problems or tell them what the problems are and the answers are or frame things for them, for them to grapple with understanding the world and um, do everything from you know, problem solving to even kind of coming up with what the problem is mm -hmm. to solve. And um, those kinds of experiences, I think, are really important um, in, for the rest of their lives. That goes way beyond just academic. So, Especially those issues that are most relevant to their lives, looking at, okay, how, how did we get here? Absolutely. And how do we escape this? Mm -hmm. um, so and so um, an example of this is say for example when I'm teaching um, U.S. history or you know government and teaching about the Constitution, rather than having students just read the textbook that will usually you know um, whitewash a lot of things about the founding fathers and slavery and all kinds of things, and um, you know talk about the you know important compromises they had to make and so on and just kind of learn a set of facts about this is who they were, um, and this is what they did. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, that's important as well, but rather than doing that, I do a role play with students hmm. where it's actually counterfactual in that um, they do a role play from the perspective of groups that were not allowed to participate in the Philadelphia mm. Convention. Mm. So groups like enslaved people, mm -hmm. groups like um, yeoman farmers, mm -hmm. groups like, um, you know, of course you have the plantation owners and the, you know, bankers and merchants and so on, but also groups like, um, you know, um, the kind of people that were part of Shays Rebellion. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it is counterfactual to some degree, but it's also this kind of social history, right? This people's history that right. Howard Zinn talks about because every one of those groups existed at that time. Yeah. And they all had different perspectives about issues about um, voting and democracy. Mm -hmm. um, to what degree democracy should be expanded or limited. They all had perspectives about um, you know, what, were, what were priorities for the country, about slavery, 
about the Fugitive Slave Act. So allowing mm -hmm. students to inhabit um, those perspectives and problem solve and argue about what should be in the Constitution and, and history is written by the victors, too. Exactly. So that's why we get those names and facts, and that there are many heroic individuals who are not very well known who should be. Um, in fact, when people ask me uh, who my heroes are, uh, I'll usually name my parents, Carl Sagan, Howard Zinn, uh, a few others. But the reality is the biggest heroes on the planet today are the ones that we don't know and really will never know. Yeah. They're the labor organizers in the developing world fighting for better working conditions uh, who may have died in a fire in a factory like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory that mm -hmm. we're still having today with yeah. not only fires but building collapses or the ones who are going into war zones at risk of life and limb uh, whose lives are lost trying to save innocent victims of conflicts that really, if you look at most of those on the planet that the U.S. is funding, mm -hmm. um, those are the true heroes. And it's important to recognize that, too. And if, if not, if we can't at least, if we can't name them, at least to call out the organizations that are working on that yeah. front and ask their colleagues to speak for them, mm -hmm. um, since they can't speak for themselves. Yeah. And I think that's a really important part of this pedagogy is not for students just to learn history, um, but to learn that it is possible for them to become people like that, to um, you know, become part of social movements that can, even despite all the limitations and restrictions that may exist, that to see that they were people throughout history that um, organized together and resisted, mm -hmm. and that it is, it is because of those things that we do have some really good things in this country and the rest of the world today. And those things did not just naturally, you know, start out that way or naturally just evolve. They were hard-won struggles. And it's things that we take for granted, the, the, the five-day work week, yeah. <laughs> the 40-hour work week, the fact that child labor is illegal, Absolutely. Uh, unless you're on a farm or in a few other situations. Um, the fact that we have the sort of regulatory bodies that we do that protect us from the kinds of uh, foodborne illnesses, granted, not as well as they should, mm -hmm. but compare us to other nations, um, that at least have we have some degree of regulation over the amount of pollutants that we spew into the environment. Um, all of that is important. The fact that women have access to reproductive health care, um, I don't think many young people today know what it was like in the pre-Roe v. Wade era. Mm -hmm. uh, we did do a whole show that I'd refer you to on to our, our YouTube channel on access to reproductive health care, but, th but these things circle around, and they're, they're coming around again with mm -hmm. now uh, two accused sex offenders out of nine on the Supreme Court, uh, where many of the things that we now take for granted that many people fought very hard for, we need to fight for them again. Yeah. And that's, that's where social studies and history is, uh, you know this, but is, is so important. Uh, the thing I like about kids, and, and you may have encountered this, is I think, I think young people, especially those in, in high school, have great BS detectors. <laughs> It's kind of why the, the, um, the anti-tobacco ads with the body bags mm. outside the, the headquarters of the major tobacco companies know, worked so well. 
Um, have you experienced that in your teaching? Yeah, you know, I think to some degree that's that's really true um, on a you know personal kind of level. I think they kids are really sharp about that, and um, they don't like being lied to, but they yeah. need to know that they're being lied yeah. to, and and they don't always. I think what's difficult though is that you know I mean we're all just kind of like um, you know fish. We're constantly surrounded by um, you know these kinds of doctrines and ideologies and when it is it is really it is quite per pervasive and so because of that I think um, you know I think we all struggle um, and kids are at that age in high school where some some are starting to see it before I see them but often I'm kind of their first experience of really questioning things that they are hearing all the time um, from their families, um, in churches, um, on Fox News, et cetera. And I, I, news, air quotes, <laughs> yes, um, please. I imagine that causes um, some conflict occasionally when, when John goes home and talks to his parents and says, guess what I learned today? <laughs> um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about some of the resistance that you and others have experienced, not just from parents, but also from administrators. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it happens regularly. Um, I mean, I, I just actually had a meeting with a parent today, um, and, uh, you know, we were in my economics class. We had a little bit of extra time one day, so we were talking about, you know, the uh, Supreme Court hearings that were happening, and um, the student started to you know go into this whole kind of tirade um, making a whole bunch of assertions that were just not true so I just stopped her um, because I wanted to just correct that and mm -hmm. just point that out because mm -hmm. I think um, I was afraid that you know students would um, that those kind of distortions would be you know perpetuated so right. she had said something like um, Brett, Brett Kavanaugh is being treated unfairly because the FBI had been investigating him for over a year, and they found nothing. And this is just a political thing by the Democrats. Different kind of investigation. So, so <laughs> I just, I just try to stop her there, and she got really upset, and she said, "Can I finish?" And I said, "Yes, go ahead and finish." But then I went back and said, "You know what you said is just not true, mm -hmm. and if you think that's true, I want you to find some evidence and cite it." Mm -hmm. um, but. You know, I mean, I, I, I started my teaching in public schools right before the um, September 11th attacks and then the whole war um, in Afghanistan and then Iraq. And I mean, you know, think about what was happening during those years when you know, the percentage of people who believed, and because our, not only our, you know, political leaders, but the media kept on repeating these things that were false, right? Mm -hmm. That Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, that Saddam Hussein had ties to Al-Qaeda and so on. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, of course they're gonna be just immersed in this kind of, you know, disinformation. And um, and that's why we need reporters such as those at ProPublica and Fair Warning yeah. and elsewhere um, who are courageous. And, and it's a particularly dark time uh, for reporters now with the Washington Post reporter that almost certainly was brutally yeah. murdered uh, by a country that is our ally uh, and our president's rationale for at this point uh, failing to take any significant action is that 
they buy a lot of weapons for us. To what level have we sunk morally uh, that our leader, someone who is supposed to be the leader of the free world, is sanctioning what's going on? Now, certainly things will change a lot by the time that this program airs. Um, I am often told that it's not worth trying to confront those with uh, more conservative opinions. And I say air quote conservative because I, I think I'm very conservative. I have a lot of Christian beliefs. I'd like to conserve the planet. I'd like to conserve lives. <laughs> um, but that, that we should steer clear from facts, that we should um, sometimes sort of confront them on that more emotional level. Um, and, and, but my counter to that is that that's the facts have to stay in the argument. Yeah. You can't ignore the facts. If we've done that, then we've sunk back into the demon-haunted dark ages of <laughs> medieval times. Yeah. Um, so that's an example with a parent. How about with administrators? Yeah, well, you know, it, administrators, depending on whether you, um, we have good administrators or not, um, can sometimes be just a reflection of the pressure that they're getting from, especially more entitled parents, um, you know, parents that might donate money to the school and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've had experiences where administrators were really neutral and just kind of were a referee and, you know, mediated a meeting between me and a parent and allowed me to explain myself and so on. And that's been great. I, I don't need administrators to defend me. I just need them to, you know, just give me a chance to explain um, what mm -hmm. I do. Um, but I've also had uh, administrators that have really just kind of taken the side of a parent that might complain. Um, you know, once it was um, a student who, in my U.S. history class, we were studying the, um, teach, I was teaching the progressive era, and I was having students read excerpts of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle mm -hmm. and um, Eric Schlosser's Fast Food Nation. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, to try to bring history alive to students, um, I used some, you know, YouTube excerpts um, of, you know, animal farms mm -hmm. to get them, a, give them a sense of, you know, what is being talked about in these texts. And so one of the students, I mean, four students are really, you know, who've never thought about that or seen anything like that before are really impacted by it, um, mm -hmm. as I think really anyone should be, um, to, you know, and then, you know, make their own conscious, cons conscious choices about mm -hmm. food. But anyway, it turned out that this one student was very impacted. She went home and talked about it with her parents, which I think is great. Um, mm -hmm. I often ask students in the beginning of the year, what do you think about you know, social studies? And usually they tell me they think it's the most boring thing, most irrelevant. They would never be thinking about it outside of a class unless mm -hmm. they're forced to. And here we have students going home that you know, it impacted them so much that they're talking about it to their parents. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, so this student talked about it with um, her parents and I don't know exactly what was said but the parent e emailed me and emailed my principal mm -hmm. and basically you know was very concerned and um, wanted to know what exactly what I did and why I did it and I explained it to her mm -hmm. and you know ex you know communicated in multiple emails and um, and then 
you know, I didn't collect that assignment. They were doing like a whole unit, mm -hmm. and I collected it at the end of the unit. And when I finally collected those assignments and read that student's writing on that lesson, she wasn't complaining about what I was teaching. She was just very impacted by it. It turned out that she had been a vegan before. Mm -hmm. And so she saw this, and she it kind of rekindled her whatever reasons that made her a vegan before. And so I'm guessing that she went home and, you know, she mm -hmm. asserted whatever choice she wanted to make about, um, you know, her diet, and her parents were upset about that. Right. Well, I laud you for taking all that time, because you have to remember, teachers do that sort of thing. You do that every day. You're not compensated for any of that. Yeah. But that's where you can really make a difference. Uh, my own start in public health actually began when I started teaching literature and medicine courses in medical schools, and I, I decided that I was going to use works by not just physician authors, mm -hmm. it's like people like Keats and Chekhov and Somerset Maugham, but non-physician authors, and that I would have the stories and the poems focus on the health consequences of things like environmental degradation and social inequities and women's rights and substance abuse, and found that uh, literature can provide an entree into the yeah. world of society's dispossessed, particularly when, as you're doing it, pairing it with a contemporary uh, issue, be it seen through a film or a newspaper mm -hmm. article, and I, I find that that sort of vicarious experience is quite valuable. Um, on the Public Health and Social Justice website, there is a, a page that's devoted to literature, medicine, and public health with lots of uh, syllabi that teachers can use um, where I discuss specific works. Um, we have just a few minutes left. I'd like to talk about teachers' unions, but I, I think that's a much bigger um, area. I, I want to give you some time, and we just have about uh, a minute to two minutes for you to briefly tell us about what Rethinking Schools is doing and the Northwest Teaching for Social yeah. Justice Conference. Um, first of all, Rethinking Schools is a national um, journal of the good kind of education reform. Um, it's based out in Milwaukee, and we have a couple of the founders of that journal uh, that live in Portland that are um, now retired from teaching for Portland Public Schools, but they're still teaching, um, and um, you know, one is working for Rethinking Schools, the other is a you know um, volunteer editor um, on the editorial board, but contributes a lot to the writing and Rethinking mm -hmm. Schools. And um, it is a journal for public education, very clear about that, um, but also recognizes that we not only need to defend public education, we need to transform it because public education, um, as important as it is in a democratic society, um, is far from perfect. And we need to improve public education, but in a very different kind of a way than the corporations mm -hmm. want to improve cor um, public education. And the Northwest Teaching for Social Justice Conference? This is coming up next weekend. Um, it is an annual conference. This is, I believe, the 11th year that we're having it. And our keynote speaker is Winona LeDuc. Mm -hmm. um, and um, this happens every year in October. Um, we alternate between Portland and Seattle. And we have, um, I believe this year, we'll probably have 1,400 or 1,500 participants. So we have educators like myself 
that um, offer teaching workshops where we um, share curriculum. And the participants basically um, enter those workshops like students. So mm -hmm. it's a participatory learning experience. Mm -hmm. And um, they are able to walk away th with some excellent curriculum, everything from mathematics to social mm -hmm. studies to science and so on. Mm -hmm. And also other kinds of workshops on policy and all kinds of things. Great. And uh, I should note that this program will be up on YouTube prior to that conference. Um, so if you get the word out uh, from that, then I assume you can still attend this year's conference. Yeah. If not, will there be one next year? There will be one next year in Seattle, and then we'll come back the following year to Great. again. So I have just some concluding remarks. The struggle for social justice is a struggle for democracy and equality, which are critical to the survival of our country and indeed the world. Advocating for the voiceless and promoting social justice can take many forms, but all involve a willingness to speak out on behalf of the disenfranchised. Our teachers help us learn how to do this. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, to know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, that is to have succeeded. So here's to the teachers and students of today and tomorrow striving to create a better world. Let's give them the support that they deserve. Young, I want to thank you for doing two episodes with us. Those of you who are tuning in just at the end, uh, you can watch this episode and the preceding episode where Hyung Nam and I have discussed teaching social justice. Again, I'll refer you also to the Public Health and Social Justice website, which has over 100 open access PowerPoint slideshows that you can use freely with appropriate citation, either in whole or in part in your own teaching endeavors, covering a range of issues, including everything from smoking to obesity to single-payer health care to women's rights to human rights to food safety and food justice, be it the use of genetically modified crops and biofarming, the overuse of agricultural antibiotics, uh, food safety, world hunger. There's an entire page devoted to environmental degradation, including PowerPoints on the coal industry, uh, there's slideshows looking at literature and medicine. Some involve photography with one of my favorite photographers, W. Eugene Smith, who covers Minamata disease or methylmercury poisoning. The pharmaceutical industry. I think I should stop at this point, but really, I have no interest to disclose. I'm not supported by anyone or any organization except the love of family and friends and the goodwill of people like Young who come on our program. I'm not making any money off the site. I make a negligible amount of money off of my book, Public Health and Social Justice, which was published in 2013 and hopefully is still relevant. If you would like to buy it, you may contact me by email or more easily go to my website. You can get a discounted coupon on the book. Again, the money, amount of money I make is negligible. That's not how it works in textbooks. Uh, and really, it's, not more, it's more of a reader than a textbook. Uh, so I should, I should be a little careful in saying that. Um, it can be used by anyone from high school age on up. Thank you again, Hyung. This has been Prescription for Justice. My name is Martin Donahue. Please join us next time. <laughs>